My guest today has had a really interesting career to date, but more of that in a moment. Here's what his colleagues say about him. Adam is a fantastic person to work with. He is someone you can rely on to deliver the numbers month in, month out, but with little fuss. A person who leads his team from the front and never shirks responsibility. He is tenacious, strong-willed and passionate in all that he does. Adam is an excellent regional sales director who leads with encouragement and belief in the team and the goals of the company. Adam always makes time for everyone on his team. His positive attitude and desire for success is infectious, helping motivate everyone involved. Without doubt, Adam is a sales machine. He's the ultimate closer. He understands the customer's requirements, builds a proposition around them, and always sells well. It's no wonder he was promoted to regional sales director so quickly. And my favorite, which is a Jim Rohn uh, quotation, is the challenge of leadership is to be strong, but not rude. Be kind, but not weak. Be bold, but not bully. Be thoughtful, but not lazy. Be humble, but not timid. Be proud, but not arrogant. Have humor, but without folly. Adam achieves this. Adam Hangen, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate it. Oh, my that pleasure, so Adam. Yeah, I want to talk to you about some of those comments around closing and around sales. There's a thread that runs through them, and I only got a selection of them there. But before we do that, just to get to know you a bit better, tell me a little bit about where you grew up, what that was like. So I'm originally from a, a very small town in the northeast of England. You can probably pick up from the accent. I'm not, I'm not a native dub. Um, Nobody had ever heard of this place until recently, actually. Dominic Cummins put it on the map, uh, Barnard Castle. <laughs> um, literally, I would have had to uh, explain I'm from near Newcastle, maybe County Durham, Darlington before then. But now, as I say, Dominic Cummins has put it on the map and apparently Top Gear were there the other week. So literally everyone... Well, you've got your eyes tested. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this is it. Uh, they even brought out a beer about it, actually, uh, the, the really? lads, I didn't the lads know that. Brew dog, yeah, Barnard Castle eye test. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm originally from there. I I was there until I was 18. I went to like a sports mad school. It's a quiet town. A lot of friends outside town. Only child. Couldn't wait to to sort of get driving, get my wings, go to college. Um, you know, so I went to Nottingham Trent and you know, lived with a bunch of people you know and just loved every minute about being around people loved it loved the city life and and that was me pretty much gone from small town living and uh, i've never lived anywhere small since very good i actually spent time in nottingham trent university or as uh, nottingham polytechnic as it was back when i went there that's what my mother said to me when she was disappointed i was going <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was there in 19, 1989, 19, yeah, 1989, I think I went there for two years, uh, part-time when I was in, I was working in Nottingham at the time, so uh, nice spot, not in, not, I'm sure you enjoyed the night nightlife. In, in I, I really enjoyed it, it was funny, like I was, uh, I was big into water skiing at the time, it was, it was a bizarre sport to be involved in, but anyway, I was, I was doing pretty well at it, and uh, the, the National Training Centre for Water Sports was in Nottingham. And uh, so I went to the two open days and my mother's obviously like, the, the red brick Nottingham University, that's where you're going, you know, obviously. And I, I just didn't really get the feel for it. It was out of town. You probably experienced it yourself, whereas Nottingham Trent was in the centre. All of the places where you'd be living were in the centre. I, I felt like you were going to a boarding school, going to Nottingham University. So against the wishes of my parents, I, I picked Nottingham Trent, despite the fact I, I had the grades to go to the other one, but I, I picked Nottingham Trent. Yeah. Had the best time. Yeah, I used to pass by the. I used to pass by Nottingham University on the way to work. I worked in. I lived in Beeston, and then would pass it by on the way to where the, the place, the GPT, where I was working. Um, I, I'm curious. Then, when you go back, you said you're an only child, and I'm always, I'm always fascinated by how our place in the family impacts who we become and the type of person we are. How do you think being an only child has shaped the individual you are today? 
So I always think you only know what you've only had and you always miss what you've, what you've, what you've never had. And like two of my best friends were actually twins. So I had the complete opposite in a, in a house of five. So I was always comparing my life to theirs. But, you know, I, I think when it comes down to it, I think being, you know, you can entertain yourself and be happy in your own company is one thing. But then... It definitely, I definitely realized when I was older and I experienced living around people and being around people that, geez, this is a whole world away from what I was used to. And I'm much more comfortable in the, in the world of being around people. I, I really seek out being around people as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that in the current climate, you know, myself and my wife were talking about about what I really wanted to do, you know, in the, in the near future and, and things like that. And, you know, I do miss that kind of office environment and being around people rather than, you know, being at home. So I think from being an only child perspective, I think you can handle being on your own. You're used to it, but, you know, it's, you also see the other side of the coin, which is usually way more fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, they say that only children also are, tend to be very determined and very driven and certainly from what i've seen what i've read about you that would be true were there were there any clues in in your growing up in was it north northeast of england it was not yeah. northwest or was it yeah you're northeast, northeast. yeah um were there any clues that would say yeah I, if somebody from the outside would say yeah i could see him being in sales I could see him being a great closer when yeah, you were younger i, I, mean, as, as I would younger, say everybody um, that would know me growing up would have would have said something along those lines actually like there's like as a as a young child i was never shy um i would always go up to people chat to them ask them for things probably this is part of being an only child right so like you you're out with your parents and like or you're only around older people so you very quickly get comfortable speaking to older people um so i was never afraid of going asking for anything you know my mother would say oh will you pop in there and get that from the shop like i i see it with my daughter she's like a little bit nervous and i'm trying to like bring it out of her go no just go and ask go and ask for that so i'll go go and kick that football if we're watching our son play football and there's a spare football on the side i'm like go and kick it you know trying to get that out of them so i think from a very early age i had that my parents used to say like on holidays camping holidays they used to just hear me i had this like little thing that i pushed with a bell on and like they just hear it go around all the different like tents asking for sweets or whatever it may be you know so like I never had any had any fear of that and then I guess going through school I was always up to some side gig or whatever I was always doing something like I'd, I'd go on holiday with the parents and say turkey and you know on a night time going on holiday with your parents you know sort of just me <laughs> you know you, you go around all the little markets and stuff and you know, they had all the like Calvin Calvin Klein tops and tag her watches and all this that kind of stuff. But anyway, I was and people in the northeast as well are obsessed with money and obsessed with like bargains. And I'm looking around at these t shirts for fifty P and I know that, you know, these Cal- real Calvin Klein t shirts are like thirty thirty pounds or whatever. And I end up buying another bag to bring back with me and filled it full of Calvin Klein shirts of all sizes, all colors, like watches, you name it, came back with a bag full of stuff and came into school. I was like, the teachers were buying it off me, you name it. Like, <laughs> I had, and every, like, there was another thing I used to bring in. I used to bring in ice pops. Like I used to make for, like, just in like yogurt pots, you know, sort of put Coca-Cola in yogurt pots with a little lollipop stick in. I used to every single morning, have this like little cool bag and I used to bring like six or eight in people used to wait for me at the school gate you know to come in and make sure they got the coca-cola ones so I was, I was always up to something even from a from a young age it's interesting that because when you look at the characteristics of what they determine often as natural born salespeople, it's very really true it's very often that it's that environment that we grow up in it's that it's learned on the street six seven eight years of age knocking on doors asking you know whether it's collecting for a chart whatever it is um i'm wondering as somebody who's hired people how much of that you look for getting past qualifications getting past what they did in their last job but really 
what what shaped them? And have you seen any trends, I guess, and any, any confounders in that? So I'd say, if you were to ask me some of my weaknesses interviewing and, and finding that exact mix, you know, is, is definitely you know something I can improve on. And you know that element of asking what shaped them, I've, I've never asked that question in, a, in anything. But what I what I do look for is to see whether people have the fear of hearing the word no, right? And I think that's the the minute you can get comfortable with hearing the word no is the minute that people come out of themselves, especially in, in the sales environment and life. You know, I think they put sales to one side, you know, sort of life in general. If you can handle rejection or like realize that actually hearing no is not a bad thing, you know, I, I think it sets you up much better. So like, I was always, you know, of this mindset. And I think my dad may have put it into me. You know, he always used to say, what's the worst thing that they can say? And the answer is no. So to the point where I, I used to do crazy stuff. No, it's not crazy, sorry. But I, you know, stuff that you would think is a bit odd. You know, I'd be buying clothes in Next. And I'd go up to the checkout and I'd say, you know, can I have 20% off? And then silent clothes, you know, and just wait for them to crumble in front of me. And they're like, oh, 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 you know, they, I'll go and ask a manager or whatever. And then someone would come on and they'd be like, why? And I said, well, you know, I used to be a student. You know, like, oh, I can see there's a student discount here. I'm too young to be that student. But, you know, can I have the 15% anyway? Whatever it may be. And just, I don't know, I just like putting myself out of the comfort zone to hear it. So, you know, when you have that ability where you don't care what the answer is, you know, I actually genuinely don't care if someone says no to me. You know, well, then... You know, then you can push yourself to positions that you don't think you could. So in an interview process, I'm trying to find if people have that ability where they're not they're not nervous about hearing the word no or getting rejected or, or putting themselves out there to that point. Because, you know, with all the sales skill in the world, you still need persistence and the ability to actually make some action and make calls or, you know, do that prospecting that you need to do, whatever level you are in that organization. And and one of the biggest hindrances of people putting themselves out there is the fear of rejection. It's interesting, actually, because I think there's two sides to this whole idea of, of the no. I remember once saying to a guy, I was a client of mine I was doing some work with, and he was interviewing a, a rep for this job. And I, I remember just saying to him, I wasn't going to be part of the interview. I said, don't forget to tell him that he's not right for the job. And he went, what, what do you mean? And he, I said, well, at some point, I said, wh whether you think he's right or not. In fact, in fact, the more you think he or she is, is right for this job, it happened to be he was interviewing. The more you think he's right for this job, I want you to say, look into his eyes and say, I don't think you're right for this job. And see how they respond to it. And, and here's the interesting bit that flummoxed me, was he said, I couldn't do that. I'd be too uncomfortable. And he paid me to sit on in the interview to ask that question or to, to make that statement to this particular candidate. He liked the idea of it, but was uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, if, if you're uncomfortable to, if you're uncomfortable getting people uncomfortable like that, how are you ever going to assess, test, find out where their comfort zone is? Or how can you hold somebody accountable for getting outside their comfort zone if you won't get outside your own comfort zone yourself as a leader, which I thought was an interesting one I hadn't seen before. And uh, I was just curious to know how you might test people for, um, for that, their, I guess, their willingness or their ability to take no and not pick up their ball and leave. Yeah, so I, I guess... And this is the perfect thing of objection handling, right? So, you know, th this is the biggest objection you're going to get in an interview is I don't think you're suitable for the job. And I think the beauty of putting anything like that, whether it be, you know, I don't think your experience is right, or is actually seeing how they go about objection handling. Because, like, and I don't want to veer off point here, but I talked about before, and it's like sales is not just about sales selling things, it's about selling yourself. And the biggest sales pitch you ever have is in an interview. So, you know, that idea of how can you overcome an objection there, you know, can you, you know, listen to the objection without interrupting, 
you know, that can actually just listen to it and bring it in, you know, repeated it back to the person, see if they can actually justify it. They, in, in that scenario, you would hope the person, you'd probably sit in there praying going, I'm not suitable. Mm. Yeah. Having that that's, awkward that's, that's silence waiting yeah. for you to say it back and then you know, justify the reason why. You know, and then going, okay, you know, isolating it and then, you know, hopefully handling it and overcoming it, whatever. But it's like that part of it is is the key to, to sales. Is, you know, and a lot of it is just actually being able to keep your mouth shut and listen to what people are saying. So, Adam, tell me a little bit about your first sales job. So my first sales job, I actually don't even have this on my LinkedIn or CV. Um, it was my first sales job was a commission-only sales job selling timeshare uh, in an office in Nottingham when I was at university. And uh, no, it wasn't selling timeshare in Nottingham, but it, they, it was a company that had a bunch of resorts all, all around the world. And the timeshare has this really bad rap, right? Mm. Because people went to Tenerife and got locked in rooms until they said yes. And like I was fortunate in the fact that I actually knew this company because I used to water ski in this on this lake that was actually a timeshare resort and this company happened to own the resort and they opened up an office right opposite my my student digs so one day I'm walking past and I see this office and I recognize the the logo on the side and I get chatting to the guy and he long story short he offers me a job so I start working part-time selling this and like talk about the like probably the harshest introduction to sales you could ever have, but the most rewarding and most educational time in like probably my working career was actually doing this. And I'll set the scene for you, right? You know, and I'd say everyone's got this bad idea of what this was. You know, there's a telesales office there. They ring up people like yourself and say, hi, Mr. Lanigan, uh, you know, do you take holidays every single year? Yes. Okay. Right. Uh, would you like a free holiday? And you would say, no, why not? You know, all you have to do is go to this office in Nottingham for two hours. And then after two hours, we'll give you a voucher for a free holiday. And you, you know, probably think it's a scam or whatever. You turn up to the office and you walk in there and you know, you're really strict. Like, now, am I definitely getting my free holiday? I want to know I'm getting my free holiday. And you come in, your guard is up. You know, it was like, this is it. And you come and sit down. You sit down with me and say, right, Adam, I'm just telling you something now. I'm just here for the free holiday. I'm not buying anything, okay? <laughs> and absolutely fine. Bear in mind, I'm sat there going, if I don't sell anything here, I don't get paid. And, uh, and two and a half hours later, they're literally getting the credit card out for eight and a half thousand pounds. And that process... You know, without any strong arming, this was through logic, through a really good fact find at the start. Um, you know, like we, there was this process at the start where you asked enough questions about how they holiday, how much money they spend on their holiday. You know, do they plan on holidaying like this for the next 10 years and all of this kind of stuff. And you would, you know, what level of holiday are they going on? They're going three or five star. And finding out all of this information as you went down. And then we'd show them these amazing five-star resorts, but you know, all of the stuff and, you know, you can go on all these bases. And then at the end, you would say, you would ask them the question, would you like to go to places like this? Yeah. So if money was no object, would you like to go to a place like this? Yes. And then you would show them the price and you would actually work out how much money they were going to spend over the next 10 years going on Thomas Cook holidays. Mm in three-star accommodation and then show them that they could save money by joining this like timeshare scheme where you could holiday in all these different places, but being five-star. Mm. And you got to the end of it and they couldn't, they couldn't say no. Yeah. Like they, they couldn't turn around. You, you would ask them the question, would you agree that my way of holidaying that I'm showing you is better than what you're currently doing? Yes. Would you agree that I'm going to save you money? Yes. You know what? Try and say no. What's really interesting about that as well is, and I don't know whether it was done on purpose or not, but having them come in in that resistant, highly charged negative state is genius because you can't stay in that state forever. You have to come out of it. So if, you, if they're coming in positive, it's easy to go negative. But if they're negative, you can't stay negative. 
You can't hold on to that. You can't get any more negative than you actually were. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they have to come. And then once, you know, we call it, it's the pendulum theory. Once that pendulum begins to swing, it's only going in one direction. And then you, you, what you're doing is you're providing the fuel, the logic in terms of 10 years is going to cost you this, and this is what you get. This is what this is going to cost. This is what you get. That's just kind of, that's just like blowing on that pendulum, keeping it going. Um, it's quite interesting. I'm always fascinated by the psychology of these different uh, sales techniques. Uh, yeah, because two hours, there's no way you could stay there forever <laughs> in, in that state. Very good. And so what was the hardest part of that experience for you? Um, it, was, it was the learning curve at the start. Okay. You know, you are having to learn quickly because otherwise you're just working for no pay, yeah. right? So, um, like, again, I was never too worried about people coming in. I used to find it a bit of a game to see how annoyed they could be coming in. And I just like, hey, listen, like, I'm just sat here with you for the next two hours. So, like, we might as well try and get along and, you know, geez, if you just answer a few of my questions and at least pretend to my boss that I'm doing my job, you know, like... <laughs> This will suit me, you know, just to try and de-arm them. And, and plus, you know, you are going to be sat there too. And not everybody did change, by the way. Some people just sat there the whole way. Oh, I'm not listening to you. So, you know, it's not like this is a 100% foolproof plan. But more often than not, you would do it. But there's, there's another element, again, about, you know, sort of, there, was, <laughs> there was one motto in that industry. It was, there's no such thing as a be-back. Right. What's the so if somebody said, okay, I just want to think about it and then I'll be back to you. Right. So the motto in that industry was there's no such thing as a be back. And it wouldn't matter how much they, and all the new sales guys had come in and they were like, no, no, they said they'd be back. They said they will be back. And like everybody else in the office would just laugh and go, no chance. Because buyer's remorse was huge. Mm. Buyer's remorse was huge. And they had a two, everybody had a two week cooling off period. And, uh, yeah, so you could do your job in there and think that you'd you cracked it, but the minute they go down to the port or they go and chat to one of their friends and say, or family, go, oh yeah, we just signed up for this like holiday scheme. You know, these guys give us free holiday. That's a scam. That's a scam. And like, there's no convincing these people. That, you know, these people come back. But again, it was about dragging out objections. You know, sort of making sure that you'd almost covered everything off mm. so they go away completely happy and even like one thing that i heard somebody say at the time that i thought was genius you know like just before they left they would ask them the question now is there any way in your mind that you can imagine you're going to go home right now and regret that you've just signed this form right now and given me a credit card is it is it is there any reason why you would go home and do that because if, if it is, let me know. I'd rather know now if you think that is the case. And oh, and it's almost like, again, they closed themselves. In terms of, so the fact that they couldn't come back. Yeah. So his, his buyer's remorse rate was the lowest out of anybody else. Yeah, that's a great post. Because, but again, that comes back to your ability not to worry about the no. Because if you're worried that they're going to say no, it's difficult to ask that question. That takes a lot of balls out of that one because that one, the, the deal is done. They've signed the form. Mm. That one, I, I was like, you know what, that is, mm. that's good. Mm. You know, that, yeah. that is really good. Yeah. Or the ultimate, when your friends tell you that you shouldn't have done this and it was crazy, what are you going to tell them? <laughs> yeah, well, like, I, I admire, you know, there's a few sales and closing techniques that, that take, you know, some, some big bravery, you mm. know, sort of the, there's one in particular that I, and it happened to me recently. And I just thought it was genius. And it took me a couple of minutes before I realized what was actually happening to me. Uh, someone was pitching me this. Um, it was kind of like a conference that we would have to like sponsor, but they'd have pre-set up meetings and all the rest. You know, they'd have a guaranteed number of meetings with you with the type of people that you want. And I was like completely getting sold on this all the way through. And then right at the end, before we even got to the price, I said, you know, I just can't, I don't think this would work for you, though. <laughs> and they said, I don't think this will work for you. And I spent the next two minutes trying to sell myself to them on why I did think it was going to work for us. Now, as it happens, when we got to the cost, it was mad money and probably wouldn't have happened. But that element, yeah. I was there actually yeah. 
Like I, it was, I was halfway through trying to convince him that it would work, yeah. and I just smiled. I was like, "Well done." I was like, well done. I was like you, "You got me." We call that stripping line the technique. It's where, like, you're trying to catch a fish when they start nibbling. Instead of reeling them in, strip a little line, let them go, and when they start to go, when they see the bait floating away, they go after it and chomp on it. It's kind of a, it's a kind of a negative psychology, I guess. Very powerful. Yeah. You saw it work. I, uh, yeah. Kudos to you for spotting it. Most people don't spot it. It kind of works. But no, it's just because I'm, like, I'm, I'm so into yeah. this. And, like, you know, there's this book, I, it's always on my desk, but it's, like, it's like, this thing is from the 90s. It's, uh, it's called One on One, The Secrets of Professional Sales Closing. And it's like, I think it was like written by some guy that was a door-to-door salesman, yeah. right? And he's like, literally, it's all about there, but... Like one of the he, he has like about sixty different clothes in them, and one of them is the takeaway clothes. But like he he preempts it going, you've got to be pretty brave to do yeah. this. <laughs> you have to be in your head financially independent and not need the business in your head at least. So for so far, what I've taken Adam is first of all the the willingness to get outside your comfort zone, the dealing with fear of the no, the rejection, all of that, knowing when to keep your mouth shut and when to speak, um, the ability to not get emotionally involved, to hear the rejection and interrogate it further, is, you know, is there a particular reason why you feel that way type of thing? Um, is there anything else? Is there a, what's that other area your experience in sales where you feel people really need to double down on to be successful that you don't see enough of? Yes, yeah, so I, I, like I've seen some amazing salespeople and like this is one of the, the key great things who have been trained by different people and I, I think one of the, the greatest things you see in salespeople and, I, and you know, you mentioned there about characteristics but is actually the ability to formulate the start of a, a sales call or even just a kind of information gathering session to be so clever that with that questions you ask that that prospect almost closes themselves later on by you asking all of the questions about what your product or service fixes for them, right? So you, you ask a bunch of questions about what they're currently doing. Oh, do you like that? How could you improve that? You know, what don't you like about this? Getting to this point of showing, you know, being genuine, making sure they feel like this is all about just fact-finding what they're doing. And then you show them what your product does and being having the ability to not go and put it in their face straight away and say, oh, look, and you said that you didn't like that, so we fixed that. You know, it's like I used to say, it's like you use that information, you put it in your pocket and you wait until near the end until the very last bit and being able to go through this like perfectly crafted pitch where they've already expressed everything that they don't like about their current provider or what they're doing in their current status quo and then showing them what you do and in the end being able to pretty much say so all of these problems that you say we fix and this is it and being able to do it and if they've already given all of the answers at the start, they've closed themselves. And I saw this guy, he was trained at uh, Yellow Pages. And Yellow Pages are renowned for really good sales training. Like, you know, one of the things I would look for is if someone's worked in Yellow Pages, because I know they've been expertly trained. But this guy that worked for me, he really wouldn't have had any of the characteristics of what you would expect a, a true salesperson to be. You know, he was shy. He didn't like being in group environments, wasn't like really chatty and jokey, would go to a sales meeting, not make any kind of, not have any crack with them. No, there'd be no small talk. He would just go straight in going, right, I've got a list of questions that I'm going to ask you right now uh, just to find out about your business. He was that prescriptive with it. But my God, did he sell? My God, did he sell? He was like reliable to the point you're talking about month in, month out, just following a method that was just proven time and time again. So like, it really opened my eyes. Like I've seen different, you know, different styles of selling things like this, but this to me, like if he'd come into the original interview with myself, I would have probably 
let the guy walk out the door because I'd say he interviewed terribly. I'd say he was just really nervous, you know, built, built no rapport at all. Like, just wasn't one of those people. But Jesus, when it came to the science of selling, he had it all. It's funny that, isn't it? That sometimes people we think, we just make assumptions, understandably. And sometimes that directness can be a huge asset in sales. I knew this guy, I, I share this with you because I, I know you're a closer and you, I think you'll appreciate the, the skill of this guy. Although I, I, I know this guy and he would not regard it as a skill. He was just saying what was on his mind. He's one of these guys who, there's no filter. He just says what he thinks. And he has his own business, kind of business consultant, and he goes into companies and he's in front of this managing director of medium-sized company. And uh, he does this discovery, everything is fine, there seems to be a good fit there, and they agree that the following week he's going to come back, give a presentation on how he's going to address and, and fix the particular issues. And so before he leaves, he says, by the way, uh, is there anybody else apart from yourself who will be involved in this decision? And the MD goes, yeah, he says, my, my business partner. He says, well, can he be here? And he says, yeah, sure, I can get him in. Um, yeah, sure. Okay, so he comes back the following week, does his presentation, and, <laughs> and he's finishing up, he goes, well, he says, what'll it be? That's his closing line, what'll it be? <laughs> and the guy, say, he, the MD looks at his partner, he goes, well, he says, uh, I never make a decision without talking it over with, with my partner. Um, oh, sorry, I, I, I missed a slight bit, sorry. He, he said, what'll it be? And the guy says, uh, well, we need to think about it. Now, thinking my friend is one of these very direct people, and in his mind, he's presented everything. So he goes, well, what's there to think about? And that's when he said, well, I never make a decision without talking to my colleague. And so my friend goes, how long would that take? <laughs> he says, I don't know, five, ten minutes. Okay, he says... I'll go outside, he says, the meter's up in my car, I'll put some more money in, I'll come back and you can give me your decision then. So he comes back <laughs> 10 minutes later and <laughs> he says to the guys, he says, so have you decided? <laughs> and he says, we have, he says, we've decided you could off. And without blinking an eye, he goes, but you haven't answered my question. Am I fucking off with the order or am I fucking off without the order? And he got the business. Not a word of a lie. Not some 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 exam. And again, that kind of guy, he's, he would he would interview is a little bit awkward. Just, as I said, some of his some of those kind of warmer social skills are a little bit lost on him. But by lord, he can cut through any kind of bullcrap. Yeah, no confidence in space, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't even know that he would see it as confidence. To him, he's just what else was there to say? I wanted an answer, so I asked a question. It's none of that fear that gets in the way that sometimes we, oh, I'll, you know, I'll worry I'll screw it up or, or I worry that they won't like me or they'll think badly of me. No, just goes for it. Tell me, I want to talk to you a little bit good about yourself. Um, what, are the, what are the kind of things that give you a huge sense of uh, achievement or accomplishment? I love building things. I, I'm really in, I love, like I, Mine's always going about business ideas and things like that. I love building things. And like one of the most exciting times of my career was a company called Living Social. Uh, it was the advent of the kind of daily deals platform, online marketing. And that whole thing, you know, we started off as a small team in Dublin and like it just grew at such a pace. And I'm talking about like this was the most exciting job that you could ever have in terms of sales because you got the buzz when you actually sold the deal to the to business, right? So let's say you're a restaurant and you decide to sign up and you'll give a special offer to all of these living social members. But then the day that the deal went live, you'd be sitting there watching all of these people buy it, right? And you could see, and it started off as a 24-hour flash sale of this, you know, 50% off this restaurant, and that's what it was. And watching the sales go up and watching the commission go up every single step of the way for 24 hours was just incredible. And then seeing the growth that we had, you know, so started off as like three, four people in Dublin, you know, we had 35 sales guys there in the end. The UK team like went to about 200, I think. And this thing was a, you know, people talk about rocket ships, but this was a rocket ship. Like it just 
it was one of those things that people couldn't get enough of. But being able to see and grow and bring people in and try and get them excited about the same way that I was excited about it. Like, I thought this was just changing the world of the way that businesses attracted customers in the door. Like it completely flipped it on its head. So I love disruption. You asked about you know, what I like. I, I love disruption. I love stuff that disrupts the status quo. And especially when people don't think it's broken. I really enjoy that. When you can actually, so, you know, when people say, turn around and go, but we've always done it like this. It's like, I know. And I'm just about to blow your mind that we can change the way that you do this. Like that type of thing really gets, really excites me, gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, you know, that, I could do that all day. So you live, you live by the adage, if it ain't broke, break it. I, I do like breaking things that people don't think are broke. Yeah. You know, like it's, I find it exciting. Like, I'm always kind of on this kind of end, edge of the envelope where I'm trying to find the, the thing that is, it is going to change the game, right? It's going to change the game. It's like something that when you explain to somebody what this does, that when they get it, and like, you know, maybe they don't get it straight away. When they do get it, it's like, Jesus, this is insane. Why did we do it like that before? You know, it's a, that brings immense satisfaction. As they say, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. This is a, this is a well-known. This is a well-known. Tell me, uh, I know you had your own business for a while. I'm curious to know what are the kind of things you learned about business, but also about yourself during that process. Because I always think running your own business is one of the toughest things anybody can do. I learned a lot of lessons in, in that. One is try and predict when a global financial crash is going to happen <laughs> and not leave a really good job look at that one. <laughs> um, yeah. I, uh, yeah, so I, it was kind of unfortunate timing. I, I guess one lesson would be to, to, you know, and it, this is kind of funny. It's completely against what I was saying earlier about, you know, not caring about, you know, what people say, but I went out on my own. It was a, to me, it was a really big thing to go on my own. And then things got pretty tough because I was started off in kind of overseas property and helping out people that actually bought overseas property. So I'd been involved in overseas property and, you know, a bunch of people weren't getting what they'd been promised in terms of rental return. And I had this solution that was going to fix all this for them. And then, and then I like pivoted into this other thing, like virtual tours of, of properties for the Irish property market. And... I think if you looked back on it, I probably should have knocked it on the head sooner. Um, but it was that fear of being seen as a failure at the time that kind of drove it a bit. But as well, I was I was getting by, right? And I wasn't I wasn't it wasn't like some of these you know founder stories where you hear they weren't paying themselves. I was I was paying myself. Things were things were good. I just wasn't at the levels that. I wanted to be and had been. So it was kind of that. Now, in terms of the lessons that I learned, an important lesson was not to be too wedded to one customer. Um, I had one customer that was probably doing maybe 40% of my business with, and they got slower at paying me, right? So I had one-man band, a bit like an only child again, right? So I was a one-man band, had somebody on two-week payment terms, and the two weeks got to three weeks and four weeks. And then, but this was a weekly thing. I was working with them every single week. And this was mountain and mountain and mountain. And I got into this horrible scenario where I literally, they, they were my biggest piece of income that was supposed to be coming in, but it wasn't coming in. And then I was given basically the threat that like, oh, look, if you don't keep on doing this for us we won't pay you for the two months previous or three months previous and yeah. that was that was a good real strong business life lesson for me um never letting it get to that stage i think i should have just been tougher at the start mm. uh, because you, you do then you get into that scenario where it's like well you know i've got two months of work that i need to get back we are in the middle of a big recession you know, these people have mismanaged the money that they should have been paying me with. So 
am I going to get this? Do I keep on going and hope to get paid? And it was then, it was actually that point when I started looking for a different way to market my business. And that's how I found that whole idea of daily deals. So I contacted Groupon at the time and said, hey, I've got this business. I want you to feature it for me. And then they told me how much they were going to charge me and how much they wanted me to reduce my my price down to and how much they were going to charge me as a, as a for the pleasure of doing so. And I was like looking at their business model going, wow, this is insane. I can actually see how much they're selling on a daily basis. They must be making millions. And in my head going, I get bet the sales guys are making lots of money. So I literally rang Groupon, Boz Deals, Living Social, asking for a job, going like, I just want to work here. And nobody was getting back to me. And I ended up speaking to someone in America at Living Social saying, I need to work here. Like, this is going to change the game. Um, but yeah, the the life lesson there was just don't be too wedded to them. Yeah. That, but it's interesting as well. I would never have looked at it that way where you talk about the credit terms, you know, the, a week, two weeks, three weeks. Really, what's happening there, the, the visual I had in my head was like this, big, this stick getting longer, the stick that they could use to beat you with and, and, and I guess, hold you hostage. It was getting longer that if, if there was a week, if they owed you a week, you could walk away from that, right? It's not nice, but you can walk away from it. But if they owe you a couple of months, that's harder to walk away from. And therefore, you're just give, yeah, you're giving them more and more and more leverage the longer it goes. And I wouldn't have looked at it in terms of leverage. I would have always just kind of go, okay, it's taking longer to get the money, but you'll get it. But actually, you're right. It's, it's about, le- particularly when the other factor, it's a lot of your business invested in that one client. I think that, that's the key yes. thing there as well. If it was one of 100 and they did that, they wouldn't have the same leverage. So I think the key lesson is more, more accounts and hold them accountable to what you've agreed to in terms of payment. Yeah, and I think, it's, again, it, it's all of this element of, you know, when you are confident enough in yourself, you know, you would, you would have, I, I should have had that conversation after, you know, when they were, became two weeks late and just go, look, I'm not doing any more work until I get paid. Mm. And I, I was very, very clear with them. I'm a one-man band. I'm... Like I was because I was doing so much work with them, I was giving them a bit of a preferential rate. So there was an opportunity cost to me working with them as well. So everything was skewed to this, yeah. and yeah. and having that, you know, and as I say, it's when you look back on it now, it's very easy to turn around and say, well, after a month, he should have just walked out or whatever. Yeah. But uh, it's easier said than done, though. Yeah, it's easy when you're in when you're in it. It's not so easy. But the interesting thing for me is that is that you know MBAs can give you knowledge. But there's nothing that can give you a lesson like that experience. There's no way you could get that in any book, in any MBA class. That that feeling, that gut, visceral reaction, that if, if somebody tried to do it to you now, it would be just instantaneous in terms of how you deal with it. You wouldn't need to look up the answer in the book. Yeah, exactly. You'd, you'd knock it in the head. You, you would hope, you know, I sincerely hope I would have learned from my mistake the last time. Yeah. But again... We live in a world where, especially when it's like supplier-customer relationship, where the supplier is doing always bending over so much to make sure the customer's happy that, you know, these type of scenarios do end up happening and, and will continue to happen for ad finitum. You know, it, it, it will go on forever. And I can definitely not rule myself out of the fact that this would potentially happen again because you... You know, when you are building a business, especially at that early stage, you know, so you're building this business, you know, this was the key piece that was like paying the mortgage, was paying the mortgage, you know, and then everything else was say the bonus on top, right? So all the rest of the business you could get was the bonus, whereas this was the the key, you know, sort of flagstone kind of thing of saying, right, you know, this is how it's going to be. So at the time, I was trying to do anything to make them happy. And then it's like, oh, Jesus, now I've just actually, you know, they probably saw that as a point of weakness and completely exploited it. So, If you had the power to put any subject on the school curriculum that was mandatory, what would it be and why? So 
I think there's a I've got a I've got a few things I'd like to put on. <laughs> um, Pick the first one. I I do think it is about like I do think that sales is the most powerful skill that that people can learn from an element of you know sales and like just starting business like actual proper entrepreneurialism like not teaching in a classroom actually like starting up a business like you know having a project where you know a bunch of students actually start something up and they learn what it takes to do it and all the rest of it but the I just think there's a lot of people and like as I say I was I'm fortunate in the fact that I'm a I was a confident child I was confident throughout school confidence you know having interviews my first interviews but like when it comes to you know the, having your first interview in a place you know going for interviews you know sort of trying to find your life partner you know all of these all of these things a lot of it is is a sales process of some way shape or form and i know that sounds crass but it's like you know you are trying to you know, sort of convince these people in front of you that you are the right fit for their business or the right fit for their life, you know, <laughs> the right fit for that night, wherever it may be. And not being able to express yourself and get that over, I think is, you know, is something that if I wasn't good at it, I would really hope that I would really work hard to improve on it. Um, so I do think that, but yeah, I think generally, I think there's a massive lack in skills of just, financial education, you know, teaching people the practicals of, you know, taxes, you know, sort of how, you know, what you're going to have to do when you start paying rent, how you can manage money. Like I've worked in financial wellbeing for the last three years. And you know, it's, I think it's just crazy that there's nothing in school about what happens when you leave school. You know, you go to school, they say, right, you know, the big aim for you is to finish school and go and get a job. And then you go and get a job. And then suddenly it's like, which is I'm earning this money, but I knew I was going to have to pay tax, but, you know, somebody in work is literally telling me about it for the first time, what all this means. You know, I've never understood what a pay slip is going to look like. And, mm. oh, Jesus, you know, I'm only on this amount of money and I've got to pay this much in rent. And, you know, you know how do I mm. save up for this? I mean, you know, there's no education in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, Tell my, me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested that, I know you're a confident person. When it comes to business, comes to life, uh, what is it you fear? Fear? I, I wouldn't fear a whole lot. I guess, I guess everybody has a fear of failure. You know, every everybody has a fear of failure and. And not, I think my biggest fear would be not amounting to what I think I'm capable of. I think that that's my fear. My fear is not realizing my full potential. Um, mm. And I have a solution for that, by the way. Just lower your expectations really low. You'll yeah. never worry about that again. <laughs> no, I, like I'm a, I'm a big believer in in having no regrets. Um, yeah, you know I. And possibly sometimes I make decisions based off that premise of have no regrets and, and maybe I live to regret that decision because you know, you, you sat there going, Well, you kind of had a bit of a gut instinct that this wasn't the right thing to do, but you said, just go and do it anyway, have no regrets, you know. So there's like having no regrets, I think, is a is a very important thing to me. I don't ever want to be sat there on my deathbed going, yeah. "I wish I did this, I wish I did that." And I hear people all the time talking about stuff like this. Kind of thing. Yeah, it's funny that because I often used to think that I was a quick decision maker, and I realized more lately that it's not that I'm a quick decision maker; I'm a lazy decision maker. And there's a difference because you'd make them quickly and then you'd find out 50% of the time you'd made a stupid mistake. But then, as you say, you kind of go, well, you know, that's, that's the downside to being a quick decision maker and you kind of wear it as a badge of honor. Yeah. But reality was that I just didn't spend the time thinking things through enough because there were, or like you said, your gut is telling you something and you didn't pay attention to it because... Well, paying attention to the gut requires you to sit down, analyze it, consider things, and 
who wants to do that? So it's sometimes much easier just to kind of break through that, that resistance, that internal resistance, and just make the decision, and then, and then regret it later. Because you, we, like, I guess the regret thing is interesting because I could ask you is, of the decisions you've made, how many of them, the ones that didn't work out for you, how many of them, if you were to go back again, would you change? Which is, I'm not asking you to list them, I'm just saying that as, as a point of saying, if you would change them, then there is some sense of regret. There has to be. But it's not the same of living with regret, which is a kind of a state of mind, which is a different thing entirely. Is there a, is there a nuanced, subtle difference between living with regret and the ability to say, you know what, I regret that, that I would have made a different decision if I was back there now. I'm smiling because the reality is I probably would make a lot of the same decisions again. And justifying it in my own head, it's it's part of this whole mantra of like, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, so mm. like, even though things haven't, say, gone my way in a couple of, couple of things that I'm, I'm talking about here, yeah, you know, at least I gave it a bash. You know, like, at least you gave it a go or whatever. You know, so it's like it's not like I'm sitting there with this bag of regrets, going, "Oh, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have done that." Mm. Yeah, your guts were saying. Like, my my wife said to me, "You know, this is a true testament of trusting your gut." And I was like, "Yeah, but the upside was going to be better than the low side, so I'm mm. I'll push for the upper side." kind of where where I kind of live my life in terms of driving for. So mm. as long as the downside isn't that bad, you know, then mm. yeah, maybe no, a bit I like of that. I pride hurts. I like the idea of trusting your gut but not kicking yourself if it doesn't work out. That there's no value in kicking yourself. There's no. nothing to be gained by that. There is to be gained by the lesson and that's what I want to talk to you about. So when you think of um, any one of those instances you said where you would have made a decision and it didn't work out the way you wanted it to be, just thinking about one of them, you don't have to tell me that, but just, it's, it's more the kind of the lesson, the thing you learned from it. There's no regret with it, you gave it a bash, but hopefully you learned something from it. Is there any kind of threads in that that you would say, yeah, here's some of the key lessons I've learned as a result? I think that one thing, so, one of the regrets I had from my first business was that I don't think I, I had a, I had a regret that I didn't give it 120%. I, I got to a stage where I was making decent money. And I got a little bit comfortable with it. I didn't really push to the next level, which mm. I've always, and it's so, it's just not like me. And, and I couldn't, I just couldn't get my head around it. And it like, bugged me for ages, bugged me for ages. And yeah, it's something that I've definitely changed. So like, even like, I'm, I'm a great one for, I think everybody should have a side hustle of some sort. Cause I just think it's good for the mind and, and good to keep you know, active and, and things like this. But to the point now where, you know, when I go into a project, I pretty much drop all side hustles and I'm like, like, you know, this is like. I'm a hundred percent in this because I don't ever want to turn around and say, you know, the reason why you didn't realize your potential there, or the reason why you didn't make that as much of a success is because you're fanning around some barbecues, you know, this, this type of thing. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm learning more that you need to be all in, um, yeah. in order to, to, to make something of it. That's, I think the issue there as well is uh, just thinking out some of my own experiences too, like that, where you don't give it a hundred percent or you, you could have given it 120 and you didn't quite is the regret there. I think is that you'll never know. You'll never know had I done 120, how things might be different and you can't fix that. You'll, you, you'll, you'll never know the answer. To that. Really, yeah. 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 Difficult one. So what's next for you? So at the moment I'm working on a pretty exciting project in the payment space. Um, okay. automating collecting payments from your customers um, like in the direct debit space so it's beforehand direct debits were just 
probably only utilities companies and you know the likes of Vodafone would be taking money from people direct debit. Uh, one of the biggest mm. problems facing SMEs in particular is chasing up bills from invoices. And uh, imagine if businesses now, instead of asking for money, um, could tell their client, when their, their customer, when they sign up, going, here's your invoice, it's coming out in 15 days or 30 days or whatever it is. And instead of asking for money, you're taking money. And I think it'll change like the way that businesses get paid. It'll take a ton of work out of, like, checking, reconciling bank accounts to see who's paid and everything like that. So I'm yeah. working on a project there called Direct Stream. It's pretty, I, I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, well, I tell you, I know you don't need me to tell you it's a brilliant idea because the number of times I have w wished that I had that ability with somebody is to, when signing them up, it's just, it's part of the process is where when you sign, this is it's coming. It's, it's like, like you said, it's not, I'm not asking for it every month. I'm not looking for it every month because I don't have the time and I don't want to go chase it. It's that it's, that it's automatic. So uh, I, I think you could have a hit on your hand on that one. I wish you luck with it. Yeah, I guess it goes back to my experience back, you know, over 10 years ago when I started that business. When I got myself into that trap, if I had all my customers on direct debit, probably wouldn't have happened at all. Yeah. Maybe... Maybe it might have happened. Maybe they just couldn't have paid it, but you you never know. Yeah. But, and that's the other thing about the re whole regret thing we, we talk about is that had you not had those experiences, you wouldn't be doing this right now. So how can you regret something that put you in this position? Yeah, every, everything's, a, everything's a life lesson. You know, and, uh, yeah. like all things, you know, like wins, losses, you know, I... I would be big on sales training, you know, so when you lose a client, when something's gone, it, you know, instead of sulking about it, you know, it's like trying to learn from it, you know, like why, why did that happen? You know, why, why have we invested six months in this big enterprise sale and, and it hasn't happened, you know, and it's actually getting people to truly reflect instead of trying to blame the customer. So, well, they just couldn't make the mind up or, you know, this, that, and the other. A lot of the time, it's just because we haven't managed to satisfy all of their objections. Um, mm. You know, and that that part I, I think is actually probably something from about thirty minutes ago. But you know, you were asking about things that you know I think general salespeople can improve on, mm. and it's actually drawing out objections. Like I find one of the the biggest things with especially junior salespeople, and maybe not just junior people, but just people that have not really had much sales training or have actually learned from their experiences is that their aim is to get through the call or meeting without really getting any objections and getting to a yes, we're all happy, you know, and, and moving on and then tapping themselves on the back. And, oh, God, that was good. I think there was no tough questions there. And, you know, I, I would almost do the opposite in, in the, at the end of a meeting I would, you know, get to the end, and if I haven't had enough objections, you know, you'd sit there and say, "So, what don't you like about this?" Hmm. And again, it's just the art of just keeping your mouth shut and yeah. letting that. So I like that idea. Yeah, and it reminds me. It reminds me of mowing my back garden. I have two dogs, and of course, dogs like to do what dogs do in back gardens, and not just crap all over the place, but also drag sticks and stones up out of the side and into the main grass. And then when you go to cut the lawn, you have one or two options. You can start up the mower and, and, and cover it in crap and, and break the blades and rocks. Or you can spend a few minutes looking for the rocks, taking them up, getting rid of them. Same with the dog crap, getting rid of it. And then the process is a whole lot smoother. I think it's the same as you're talking about there with the objections. Yeah, like it, it's just they're going to come anyway, right? Anyone yeah. who thinks they're not going to come, like maybe that one person you are pitching to right there who is like maybe that you know they're going to bring it up a level you know if you haven't satisfied it with them and they bring it up a level and their first reaction is this objection and this person doesn't know the answer you're gone you're not getting to the next stage or you're wasting another two months trying to get back in there mm. so mm. you know they just even that question of you know saying when you know you're not pitching to the decision maker, and unfortunately with enterprise sales, you have to do the dance, right? You have to go through all of the different stages. You can't just get straight to the, 
the decision maker. And and saying something, well, if you were the boss, like if it was your decision, would you buy now? And yeah, I like that. And then and then you are <laughs> because if they're not confident enough to say yes right there and then, there's no way they're going to be able to sell this upstream. Hundred because we, we rely on them to almost do a bit of our job yeah. for us as much as we'd love yeah. to take it all control ourselves we just don't have that luxury unfortunately yeah. they're the worst form of decision makers the ones who can only say no but can't say yes <laughs> you have to dance with them for a while for sure um, I have a couple of questions for you left Adam we're unconscious, conscious of time um, when your time on this planet is done and they write a book about your life story uh, what would you like the title of it to be? This is easy. <laughs> my, my motto, this has been my gravestone, it's shy bands get knee sweets. It's like, it's a northeast phrase. It means shy kids get no sweets. And it's just a motto I've had since I was a kid. And I, as I say, it's probably just the, the biggest guiding principle in my life. So that is, I've already... Yeah. Like at some point, I think it would be a nice thing to do to, to write a sales book of some sort, and that, that would be my title. I know nobody else would understand the title apart from me and a few other people from the Northeast. But like, yeah. But so, so that tells me then it really is for you, it's all about courage, overcoming your reluctance to ask the questions, to to take the rejection that that's it really a lot of it comes down to that if you could if you can address that everything else can fall into place it's about putting yourself out there yeah it, it, you're right so i guess it is courage it's about putting yourself out there in a position to be rejected in a position to mm. be potentially ridiculed whatever it may be it's like and have, it's having no fear of that consequence like that's, I think when you can get comfortable like that, you can live a far more content life. And yeah. and it kind of runs into a few other like, things, like quirky things that I would have. But, you know, I'd be like, don't stress about things you've got no control of. You know, if I'm in a taxi and I'm late to the airport, you know, like say you're in London and you get stuck in traffic and you're supposed to be flying back. You know, like, I know people that would stress out massively about, you know, oh, I'm not going to make it on time, I'm not going to make it on time. It's like, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to make this taxi grow wings and fly over London to get yep. to the airport. You know, so it's that, those type of things. But again, I think it's like, it, it links back to that whole point of, you know, so if you only care about what you can control, you know, and then having no fear of what the actual, like, not repercussions, re that's wrong. Like, I'm not that crazy. It's like, yeah. you know, but just say, like, when you put yourself out there, don't be worried about what the, what the response yeah. is. Yeah. Only caring about what you can control. I think the difficult bit in that is uh, not caring or letting go, I should say, letting go of what you can't control. I think that's a tough thing for some people. Myself, sometimes included, is to, I'm quite conscious of it, is that I can, you know, fight causes and then kind of go, I have no control over this. What am I, what am I, worrying about or what am I getting involved for just let it go and uh, that that's not always easy but uh, it's it's certainly a worthwhile goal and all of that for sure uh, Adam listen I'm, I'm, I have one final question for you before I let you go I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat uh, so here's my final question your house is burning down uh, your family are safe any pets are safe if you have any and you've, your phone of course is safe <laughs> but you have time to run in and, and grab one last thing what would it be and why? Um, I should probably think of something sentimental now, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, <laughs> that says everything. <laughs> um, I should be sentimental. Screw it. <laughs> no, you know, I don't, I don't know why. Like, like, I guess... House is burning, Adam. House is burning. Yeah, I no, hear the cracking yeah. now. I don't know. The, the thing I get most enjoyment out of in the house, for instance, or whatever, is my barbecue. Like, so like, if you ask me what, what is it? How thing? ironic your house is burning down and you go grab a barbecue. Yeah, well, I wouldn't need a firelighter anyway. But no, it's, like, beautiful. It's, a, it's a big kind of escape for me. I absolutely love barbecuing to the point of, let's say, I import them 
<laughs> bought them and sell them. But uh, wow. it's, yeah, I just absolutely love it. I love putting something on in the morning. Like, I'm talking about low and slow barbecue and, you know, sort of in the Camaro, like just mm. literally, you know, put some ribs on in the morning, you know, sort of 10 hours later, they're ready or a pulled pork or something mm. like that, you know, beef ribs, you name it. I'm just absolutely obsessed with that. And, and cooking. You do it all year round. All year round. Like literally, okay. it doesn't matter. I've broken two gazebos because of the weight of the snow. Like, and then when we did the garden, I actually put up a covered area for it because I was sick of barbecuing in the rain. I actually set a, yeah. <laughs> I set a tree on fire, barbecuing in the rain because it was raining, and I moved the barbecue closer to a bit of coverage from the trees. Now it still had about eight mm. foot coverage above the tree, mm. but. Anyway, about 20 minutes later, yeah. I'm in the house looking out at the whole streets of fire. Yeah. What's the... Uh, Bobby Kerr on, on Newstalk, he's another uh, barbecue aficionado, and he will do his Christmas turkey in the barbecue. That, that, that's the next level. I, I'm, I'm guessing you don't... That, that's Christmas Day you take off. No, no. Like everything... No. Everything, every, everything... Every bit of meat... Is pretty much cooked in the barbecue. So you think any Sunday roast chicken, you know, they, there's never a roast chicken done in the oven. Like we would do wow. a beer can chicken. Have you ever had beer can chicken? No, no, I, you stuff it into the chicken. I've seen it, but I've never. Like, I've got these little, uh, it's like little, they call it chicken throne. So the chicken can sit on the throne. Right? You pour beer into this like little cup and, you know, literally yeah. sit the chicken on top and, and lightly smoke it. And it, what it does is it steams it from the inside. So it steams it from the inside, so it keeps it really moist. So it get a bit of flavor from the beer as well or whatever. You can put anything in there, apple juice, you name it. But steams it from the inside, smokes it from the outside, really moist and evenly cooks throughout. So it just cooks a little bit quicker as well. Have you ever thought about doing a barbecue type podcast? I think this is fascinating, by the way. I'm not, I'm not winding you up on this. I think it's really interesting the... the that there'd be a lot of people who would kind of value that just because if you're like me, barbecues come out on a summer's day and I have a nice one, but it's very rare that I get to use it, but I'd love to use it more because I actually enjoy the process. It's not, even the end result is fine, but it's just, it's just the elemental nature of it. I think it's really, I, I, I enjoy that. It's the next best thing to being beside a campfire. Um, it would make a great podcast kind of a, or a blog, vlog type of, program just as yeah. a side a bit of fun because you could set it up easily you could talk to the camera while you're cooking and uh get somebody else then to edit it for a fiver and pop it up on youtube i think it'd be great i think there's a there's an idea in that but uh what i've also learned is the fact your house is burning down now i know why it's burning down you started it with your barbecue <laughs> <laughs> my neighbors would attest to that anyway yeah Adam, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it.